So we're in Ephesians, we're in chapter 4, and we're inching our way through. Tonight we're going to look at verses 25 through 28. So much packed into chapter 4 here that we can't rush. We have to unpack and savor every part of God's Word, amen? I don't know, sometimes we get in the habit of reading portions of Scripture, chapters, books, and we... We rush through sometimes to get our reading done, and I, I recommend not doing that because there's so much in the Word that one time the, that the Holy Spirit illuminates something in Scripture to you will change your whole life. So, Father, we thank you for each morsel of your Word tonight, and we thank you, Lord, that you've tucked something special in each verse, in each book, in each chapter of each book, Lord, and so we're taking our time to enjoy Ephesians chapter 4 tonight, and Father, we ask by the Holy Spirit, you would illuminate and open up verses 25 through 28 to us. There's so much in here. Father, help us to make application of what's taught tonight to our daily living so that it changes us, that we wouldn't be hearers only, but doers. So Holy Spirit, teach us how to do what you're teaching us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Buckle your seatbelts, put your trays in the upright position. And the word says this, Therefore, ridding yourself of falsehood, say lying, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Wow. Powerful verses, right? There's, uh, there's a couple sermons in there, but we're going to look at those verses tonight. Uh, verses 25 through 32 really list a, a bunch of things that need to go in our lives since we are transformed and now in Christ, amen? When we're in Christ, we're different than when we were outside of Christ. When we were outside of Christ, we were like the Gentiles, wild, out of control, driven by lust and passion. Uh, if it felt good, do it. If it was something we enjoyed, we would justify it. There was no uh, lines that we wouldn't cross, and the Gentiles lived that way. Now, being in Christ means we leave behind the old nature and all of its drivenness and all of its lust, amen, and we behave differently. Some churches really need to hear that, you know, and I'm not being judgmental, and I don't like when people are judgmental of the church or criticize pastors because, you know, who are we to judge another man's servant, the Bible says, but sometimes when things are so out of line, we've got to draw attention to it because its souls are on the line. And you know what? We need to be different. If there's no difference between the church and the world, then something's wrong. And it shouldn't be a difference that ostracizes or isolates or makes others feel bad. It should be a difference that attracts people and gives them hope. Amen? So there's a change that takes place. And these verses here, 25 through 32, they list a bunch of things that need to change and that old nature needs to go, and we put on the new nature in Christ. Amen? Remember we talked about our Christian walk our walk is the way we think, act, feel, and live. When you see that word walk, 
realize the implications there. Our Christian walk is the way we think. It's the way we act. It's the way we feel. And it's the way we live our lives. All of that is included in the walk. And that must be different now because we're in him. Now, please be advised as we go through these verses, 25 through 32, and we look at all the things that need to be brought in line, realize that all of this is a process. Say process. Amen. Because if you look at some of these lists and some of these things and you, you measure up your life or you see areas where, you know, sometimes you go through a list and you're like, man, I need work on every one of those. Anybody? And it's overwhelming. And you think, man, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm not cutting it here. And thank God our salvation is a free gift. It's grace through Jesus Christ. Amen. All of these things that we bring into line after we're saved don't save us, but they do allow Jesus to shine through us so the world can see him, amen? It's a sanctification process. So these things are a process. And what we're going to look at tonight, uh, all of us should be in process. Some of these things we should have down by now, amen? And some of these things we're going to work on till the day that we die. But thank God for his grace. So it's, it's, a, it's a process. It's something that if we try to do all of it at once can be overwhelming. It can lead to legalism. That being said, hitting these character benchmarks that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about here are, are really a decision of our will. You know, if we're struggling with some of these things and we've been saved for 10, 20, 30 years, we're still struggling with them because we've decided to. Come on, Wednesday night. I want to thin the crowd a little bit more. You know, if we're still struggling with the same things that we struggled with when we got saved, something's wrong. Some of these benchmarks we should have already hit. And you know what? There's things in my life that if I'm still struggling with that, that's because I've decided to, because I haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to discipline me, and I haven't repented, and I haven't allowed God to remove that from my life. <laughs> Talking about lying and stealing and thieving here, Amen. Some things got to go, and they got to go immediately. And some things we struggle with because we've decided, you know, we're not going to give that up. And we've got to choose by a decision of our will to cooperate with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Some Christians are still angry, bitter, lazy, cynical, immorical. And it's that the reason is, is not because God's slack and he's not working on them. It's because they've chosen to stay that way. Amen. All right, that's my disclaimer tonight, so let's jump in. Starting in verse 25 here. Therefore, ridding yourself of falsehood, talking about lying here. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Now, this begins by telling us to do something powerful. It says to rid ourselves. And I want you to, before we even talk about the falsehood and the lying, I want you to notice that word rid, because that implies that we have a part to play in the process here. You see, if God says, stand still, and I'll rid you of it, just hold hold on tight, and I'm going to just rip it out, and it's going to be... No, he says, rid yourself. That means there's a part for us to play in allowing some of these character issues to be sanctified and replaced by the Holy Spirit. So before anything in our character changes, before we can really tap into the life changing work of the Holy Spirit, we have to take personal responsibility for the condition of our lives. All right, a couple. 
We're made in God's image. That means we have a free will. Do you see? We have to take responsibility for what our free will has allowed to remain in us. If we've stayed immature, if we've stayed in habitual sin, then we take responsibility and we say, Lord, I want to rid myself of these things. We're made in God's image, so we got that free will thing going on. Now, God doesn't violate our free will and just rip things out of us. Now, thank God, some things when we get saved just go away instantly. Anybody been delivered from stuff instantly? Amen? Woo! That's awesome, isn't it? Thank God. But not everything is delivered. Not everything goes instantly. All of us still have some stuff to work on. And so it's a decision of our will to say, you know what, I'm going to cooperate with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do my part to rid myself of the things in my life that are no longer useful to me and that are no longer pleasing to God. I have a free will, and I surrender it to the Holy Spirit to do everything he wants to do in my life. Church, there's power in what I'm saying here tonight. If you can grab hold of this, things that you're struggling with, things that you, you're stuck in, things that you have yet to overcome uh, by surrendering your will to the Holy Spirit and just constantly allowing him to have his way, you're going to get free of stuff that you would otherwise not get free of. If I'm still stuck, if I'm still angry, if I'm still bitter, if I'm still cynical, at this point, it's my choice. I know, it's heavy, but it's true, and the truth will set us free. So according to verse 25, the first thing that has to go is falsehood, talking about lying here. When it comes down to it, everybody knows lying is wrong, amen? And there's two reasons why all of us know lying is wrong. Number one, because our conscience immediately convicts us when we do it. If you think back to as a kid or maybe the first time you were aware that you, someone asked you a question and you're like, I am not telling the truth. They're talking and you're working on a lie. Maybe it was your parent, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was a neighbor. Did you throw a rock through my window? Coming up with something other than I threw the rock through your window. And, you know, when we lie, especially when we're young, especially when we're, you know, tender and pure and kind of innocent, those times we decide to lie, boy, our conscience really stings us, doesn't it? The more we lie, the more we deal in falsehoods, the more we are evasive with the truth, the less our conscience stings us. If you've ever met someone who's a pathological liar. They can lie with a straight face. They can lie without feeling bad about it. They can lie right to your face and, and sleep like a baby at night. There are some people that are so pathological in their lying that they can fool lie detectors. And they'll, they'll be saying something that's completely false, but because they're so, you know, their pathology is so twisted and they're so, you know, they, they have so many issues that the, the, the normal indicators that happen in the physiology of a person when they lie doesn't even show up on the polygraph. Hello. So as with all sin, the more we give ourselves over to it, the more entangled we get within it. But God tells us not to lie, and we know it's wrong because our conscience violates us. It stings us when we lie. And number two, the second reason we all know that lying isn't right is because we don't want to be lied to. Amen? When you ask somebody a question, when you ask your spouse a question, when you, you ask your boss a question, you know, you want the truth. When you ask your kids, you want the truth. How do you, you know, 
I've been lied to before to my face with people that I trusted and stuff. And I'm telling you what, it, it's like a punch in the gut. can't believe you lied to me. Wow. So our conscience stings us, and that's from God. But we can wear our conscience out, and we can sear it. And, you know, we, we default to the fact that, you know, we don't want to be lied to, so we know we really shouldn't do it. Now, lying is a violation of the ninth commandment. Exodus 20, 16 says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So this whole idea of lying is not something that, you know, we got to search out scripturally. It's always been, uh, you know, it's always been something that God has categorically rejected among his people. And we're going to dig into that a little bit. Why? Because it's completely contrary to his nature. But lying is a violation of the ninth commandment. Lying is a defining mark of who the devil is. Look at this. When we lie, we identify with the devil. It says here in John 8, 44, Jesus speaking to the religious crowd, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Listen, whenever he tells a lie, he speaks of his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, we identify more with the devil than we do with God. Amen. I know that's tough to swallow sometimes because, you know, what, we're human and all of us can remember times where we didn't tell the truth. Now, I'm not trying to bring condemnation on anybody. I'm just saying people who do that identify who their father is. Jesus said right to the crowd, he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's the father of lies. And when you lie and when you do the things you do, religious crowd, you are showing who your daddy is. Wow. Being a liar is the exact opposite of who God is. Listen to a few scriptures. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he would lie, nor the son of man that he would change his mind. He has said it, and he will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make good? So Numbers telling us that God doesn't lie. He never lies. He always tells the truth. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't renege. He doesn't walk things backwards. He says the truth all the time. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice Jesus said one of the marks of who he was was that he was the truth. Why could he say that? Because truth is a divine attribute of God. And Jesus, being fully God, identified with that divine attribute and said, I am truth just as the Father is truth. Our nature is one, and I'm defining who I am to you. There's no falsehood in me. There's no variance in me. There's no lying in my lips. I'm Jesus. I'm the truth. Wow. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Notice this, every part of the Trinity, our Father God is truth. He is defined as truth. It's one of his divine attributes. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now the Holy Spirit is being defined as the spirit of truth. You see how truth works right through the Trinity, every part, because God is truth. And when we tell the truth, no matter how hard it is or no matter how much it stings, we identify our Father as God. When we lie, we identify with someone else. It's quiet tonight. Remember Ephesians 4.15 that told us to speak the truth in love? We need to deliver the truth. Now, I know it's hard to tell the truth sometimes. People ask us questions that we don't want to answer. And maybe we can find a way to skillfully not answer. 
in the courtroom, you say, I plead the fifth. When your spouse asks you how they look in an outfit, maybe you want to say, I plead the, no. And my wife knows when she asks me, I tell her. How do I look in this dress? How do this, this shoe or that shoe? Is it this shoe or that shoe? And I'm decisive. I tell her the truth. She rarely has to ask me twice because she knows I'm decisive. And I like that. I don't like that. That flatters you. I don't like the way that looks on you. That shoe matches. That shoe you need to give to the dog and let him chew on it. So (laughs) we got to tell the truth, but we got to do it in love. Amen. Well, I don't want to tell the truth. They'll get offended. I don't want to tell the truth. They'll get mad. Find a way to do it in love or sometimes just say nothing. I know that's a strange concept, but sometimes, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, we should go around just not saying nothing every time we we want to lie, but I'm saying it would be better to say nothing than to lie. So lying is an issue that God wants us to deal with and to uh, put out of our lives, to be extracted. Look at the tail end of verse 25. It says, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, because we are all parts of one another. So God specifically instructs us to be truthful, not just with those who are close to us or family or, you know, connected or church. No, he tells us to be truthful with everyone, including our neighbor. You say, well, who are my neighbors? It always goes back down to this. Well, I don't have any neighbors. I, I live, you know, far away. From, I'm in the middle. of No, our neighbor is, is everyone. It's everyone we come in contact with. It's not just the house on the right and the house on the left and across the street don't count. You can lie to him. No. Our neighbors are everyone. It's everyone that we rub shoulders with. So we have to be truthful with our neighbors. Why? Because we are parts of one another. So God's saying to be truthful with everyone around you, not just those in the church, but everyone within your reach. Speak the truth in love. Sharing the truth in love with our neighbors is an essential component of evangelism and maintaining a healthy sense of community. We are parts of one another. There's a sense of community that we should have, even with those who are not in the church. Amen? Because they're the people we're called to reach. So sharing the truth with our neighbors, oh, I don't want to give them the gospel. I don't want to bring up Jesus. Or I, you know, I heard the windows open. We hear the things they say. We don't, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, smile and wave. No, we've got to share truth. Amen. This is a call to be truthful in our evangelistic outreach as well. We can't just, you know, they, they start telling us crazy things or talking about sin or just in this and that. And we're just silent. We keep watering our flowers. And we're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know it's hard. We've got to share the truth. If we shut our mouths and don't share the truth with people who are perishing and losing their souls and they wind up in hell for eternity, their blood could be on our hands. That's a sobering thing to think about. So telling the truth is not just not lying. It's withholding the truth when we know the truth of the gospel and we don't share it with those in our community who desperately need to hear it. Verse 26 and 27 tell us two things that, that, well, it tells us the second thing that's got to go. So first, lying's got to go. Can we all agree to say goodbye to lying? Amen. 26 and 27 give us the second thing that's got to go, and that's unchecked anger. Say anger. Say it like you're angry. Oh, that was good. Get you riled up a little bit here, and then we'll talk about it. So the text 
doesn't tell us that we can never be angry, and I want you to see that. So let me read it to you. It says, be angry. Oh, so we can be angry. And it's a legitimate emotion, and we're going to talk about that. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Oh, so you you can be angry, but not angry in a way that leads to sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Some translations say wrath. You ever seen somebody so angry that it looks like wrath? Woo! And do not give the devil an opportunity. So let's take a look at 26 and 27 here. It's the second thing that Paul puts his finger on that has to go out of the life of a believer. Why? Because we're, we're no longer lost and in sin and driven by our passion and angry and bitter and wild. No, we're part, we, we've received grace. We've been forgiven. We, we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. We've got to be different. So... The text doesn't say we can't be angry. And, you know, I think people who never show any anger are a little weird. And honestly, they're a little scary. They're the ones you read about on the evening news someday. They're the ones that they discover 27 bodies in the basement. I'm just being real with you. Because people who don't show any emotion or don't show any passion or don't show any anger are a little spooky. Makes you wonder what they're planning. So we are not to just say, well, we're Christians now, so we should never be angry. That's religious, that's legalistic, and that's bizarre. But we are to express anger because anger is a legitimate emotion. God has given us emotions. You know, God and man are... Ex- express the same emotions in many ways because we're created in the image of God. So uh, we express the same emotions that God does, and God expresses anger. Oh, God would never be angry. God's happy, clappy all the time. He's just, you know, everything. No, and he, everything's okay with him, and we'll just sing a couple kumbayas together. And no, God gets angry. And sometimes we forget that, and religious people forget that, and lost people forget that, but it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. This world is headed for judgment, and the cup of wrath, as the Bible says, is filling up, and when it gets to overflowing and God's wrath is pouring out, he's going to get everybody's attention. When you read the book of Revelation and you see the judgments that are pouring out. I mean, I don't know about you, but God expresses just a little bit of wrath or a demonstration of his power. There's been times where I've been in lightning storms where I like, I said, I better repent just in case. And the bolt is hitting here and the tree is flaming there. And I mean, I I live up on top of a mountain, man. We're like a lightning rod up there. And you hear, boom, and the whole house shakes. And Father, forgive me if I have sinned. If I've offended you, Lord, I just... God, God is no joke. The children of Israel, man, when they're coming, approaching the mountain, and it's rumbling and thundering and stuff, and they're like, you go, Moses. Moses is like, don't push me. We're going up there. God, you know, displays anger. He's done it throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, we see Jesus displaying anger, flipping over the money changer's table, making a whip out of cords and just whipping some folks, and that's, uh, you know, that's a display of anger. You know, 
God's anger is different than man's anger, and we're going to talk about that. God's anger is pure and justified because it's always righteous indignation. If you're taking notes tonight, write that down, righteous indignation. That's the anger of God because it's holy and it's thoroughly justifiable that he is offended by sin. And so when he displays his anger, no one could say, hey, God, you need to chill out and take an anger management course because you're a little out of control. In fact, some people think the God of the Old Testament took an anger management course and then he, he wrote the New Testament. And the truth is that's not true at all. He's still the same God with the same wrath and the same, uh, you know, uh, offense about sin. But now grace has been injected into the equation through Jesus Christ. And so the law has been satisfied by the blood of the lamb. So he is a lot more gracious and patient with us now. And I see what our the nations are doing, and I see the wickedness of mankind and humanity, and I see the immorality even in America, and, and it's been said before, and it needs to be said again, if God doesn't judge us soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, what's holding back God's anger, God's wrath? His grace, because he's not willing that any should perish, but when he expresses anger, it's totally justifiable. Judges 2.14, over and over again in the book of Judges, it says things like, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. If you study through the book of Judges, or if you do a word search on that phrase, you're going to find in Judges over and over again, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. The anger of the Lord was hot over and over. Why? Because he delivered them, and they'd go right back to sin. And he would get angry, and he would judge them. And they would go into bondage, and then they would cry out, and he would deliver them. And the cyclical pattern of the book of Judges went over and over again. But God was angry. God wasn't like, oh, they messed up again. I'll come rescue them. No. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, man can express anger as righteous indignation. Are there times where all of us as believers look at the immorality and the, and the, and the wickedness of, you know, murder and abortion and all kinds of things that are going around us? Are there times where we look and we are just, we're heartbroken, but at the same time, we're angry? that this continues, amen? I don't know about you, but we pray and we fast and we cry out and, and the wickedness continues and the wickedness gets more wicked. And if that doesn't bother you, something's wrong. And we should be angry about it because it offends the Lord. It offends his holiness and it should offend us. So there are times we can express righteous indignation, but more often than not, our anger is not the byproduct of righteous indignation. I yelled at my spouse, I yelled at the kids, I kicked the dog, and it was all righteous indignation. No, it wasn't. More often than not, we get angry because our pride is offended, and we get carried away by our passions and our emotions and, you know, we're not being indignant because, you know, holiness has been offended. We're angry because, you know, our ego or our pride or our flesh is inflamed. Now, what happens when man gets angry? We want vengeance. We want to fall immediately back to the Old Testament. It's eye for an eye time. You know, we forget all about grace when we're angry. We want our pound of flesh, and we want to ignore the reality that we are partakers of grace. You see, the Bible says that man's anger does not produce what God's anger produces. Because God's anger is righteous and it's holy, it brings men 
through the fear of God to a place of conviction so that repentance can happen. Man's anger doesn't generally do that. We just want vengeance, and we, we compound sin upon sin, and we make more of a mess. James 1, 19 through 20, you know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Now, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Listen to verse 20. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Wow. And ladies, if you're thinking, yep, that's right, man's anger is no good, but when I'm mad, the whole house is in trouble. No, it's generic. It's for all of us because our human anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. It usually makes more of a mess. I wonder if there's anyone that could testify. I was angry, and I, and I, I had an outburst of anger, and then everything fell into place, and the blessing of God came. Usually not. So God's anger is different than ours, ours and ours makes a mess. God brings conviction that leads to salvation. God's instruction to us to deal with anger is to check it before it gets out of control. It's a legitimate emotion, so we're allowed to express it. But we've got to check it quickly before it gets out of control. Someone say amen. Uh, Because if it gets out of control, it's no longer a legitimate emotion. Now it's sin. Be angry and sin not. You say, Pastor, where's the line? I don't know. It's different in every scenario. It's different in every heart. But we have to be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to know when we've crossed the line. There's been times where I have the legitimate right to to express anger in situations and, and did, and it was okay. But then you get to a point where you know you're at the line or you're about to cross it. Come on. So we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to show us where the line is and not cross it. So God says, you know, check that anger. And how does he say to do it? Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. Why Why this time constraint here? Why is he showing us to, you know, address it and bring it to a conclusion? Because anger held on to quickly becomes sin. Anger must be vented quickly and then released into the hands of God. And it should be followed up perhaps with grace, if applicable. Amen? When we're correcting our children and they do something really crazy and we get angry and we we correct them, but then now we, we pour out grace and love because that's the way God corrects us. God doesn't yell at us and scream at us and throw, throw us out and not talk to us for two weeks. Amen? So let's temper our anger with grace. Let's address it quickly. Express it as a legitimate emotion, but not harbor it. We don't let the sun go down on our wrath. People who nurse anger, who allow anger to smolder in them for days, for weeks, some people for years, people who are brooding just beneath the surface, ready to explode in a tsunami of sin. Have you ever met an angry person? Man, it doesn't take much to set them off. Have you ever just seen some people explode and go, where did that come from? They've been, they've been fanning that for a while. Why? Because they didn't take God's counsel. They didn't express it, vent it, and let it go into the hands of God. You see, some people hold on to that anger, and they hold it in their bellies, and, and it, it just creates this, this rage and this fury that is, you know, kind of just nursed along. And then all of a sudden they explode, and it's a tsunami of sin of anger and wrath, of cursing, of, you know, judgment. 
Anger that's held on to will want to express itself. Don't think you can keep it and nurse it and feed it and fan it and that it's just going to stay tame. It's going to want to express itself. Romans 12, 19 tells us that, you know, when our anger is fanned and nursed like that, that it, it, it eventually will bring us to the place where we want vengeance over what we're angry about. And Romans 12, 19 says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You know, vengeance belongs to God. You say, well, they hurt me. I want to set them straight. They, they offended me. I want my pound of flesh. I want justice. God says, no, 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 no. You're under grace. Let me straighten it out. Because if you try to do it, you're going to wind up being worse of a sinner than they were. What they did to you will pale in comparison to how your anger and wrath just make a big mess. So verse 27 says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Uh, if we allow our anger to fester and harbor, we don't let it go. And we all know people who never forgive, never forget. They're still angry. You could mention a situation that happened 30 years ago, and within seconds, they're whipped up into a frenzy of anger. Hello? You got to let that go. We're under grace. It says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Unreleased anger gives the enemy a really powerful opportunity to leverage us to do things that we would normally never do. Do you realize people who are angry, when they vent that anger sometimes, they, they cross lines they would have never crossed? And that gives an advantage or an opportunity to the enemy. Why? Because we didn't let anger go. We festered it. It grew into a monster, and then it expressed itself, and we did something that we can't take back. There are so many broken souls who are divorced now because they didn't deal with anger. There are people who are estranged from their children because of... The, not handling their anger, people who are financially destitute, bound by addiction. There are people sitting in jail cells right now that because of anger, they did something that cost them their liberty for the rest of their lives. In a moment of anger that was not, you know, it had been brewing a while, they, they killed someone. They, they did something they can never take back. This anger thing is no joke. I know it's real quiet, and I know you'd wish I'd go on to the next one, but you don't know what's going to happen in the next one. But anger is something, if you're keeping it, if you're holding it, let it go. We're under grace. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He'll repay, amen. We have to forgive, and we have to let it go into the hands of God. Verse 28, talk about the third thing that Paul puts his finger on here that has to go after we come to Christ. It's the issue of stealing. Stealing is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20, 15. Thou shall not steal. Does anybody need to do a word study on that or pray about that one? No, I'm not quite sure it means that. Let's go back to the Hebrew. No, thou shall not steal is pretty clear, right? Stealing is sin. It always is, it always has been, and it always will be. This shouldn't be an earth-shattering concept. But here goes. Christians still steal. People, I see people, you know, wearing crosses or, you know, saying they're Christians and stuff, and, and still stealing is a part of their lifestyle. Now, this is going to hurt a little bit, but I'm going to get into the nitty and the gritty tonight. And the doors look like they're fastened, and you're all comfortable, so you got to stay. So it shouldn't be an earth-shattering concept that we shouldn't steal, but the Bible says this, the one who steals 
must no longer steal. This is our text. But rather, he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now, Zechariah 5.3, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's a scripture I want you to look at and get in your heart. Zechariah 5.3, Old Testament minor prophet, warns us that thieves bring a curse upon themselves that cuts themselves off from the blessing and the goodness of God. People steal and they think, ha-ha, I got away with it. Nobody saw it. The boss didn't notice it. My neighbor doesn't know where it is. It's in my garage. And, And I got away with it. And listen to me, nobody who steals gets away with it because God will not be mocked. And Zechariah tells us that a curse is attached to everyone who steals. Listen to what it says. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that steals shall be cut off as this side according to it. uh, As on this side according to it. So everyone who steals shall be cut off. Cut off from what? The goodness of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God. Whatever you've stolen is not worth a fraction of what any of those things I just mentioned are. I stole this. I stole that. I got a car. I got money. I got a big bank account. I I got insurance fraud. I got a big settlement. I got a house. Listen to me. None of that is worth the blessing, the favor, and the goodness of God in your life. When you steal, you cut yourself off. Why? Because God won't be mocked. People get away with it all the time but they never get away with it in the eyes of God. So stealing's got to go. How do Christians steal? You might think, I don't steal. And you know what? Christians uh, do steal in ways, and I'm going to cover some things here. It's not just that they, you know, take somebody else's stuff or they're doing a smash and grab or you guys are going to leave church and put a ski mask on and knock over a few liquor stores tonight. If you were, I hope you'll reconsider. It's that they take things from their jobs, from their families, from their neighbors, from people off the street, from the government in ways that are unimaginable. Listen to me. Christians who are able-bodied and won't work but take government hands outs with no intentions of getting a job are thieves. I don't care how big your Bible is, if you wear a cross on your neck, if you're somebody in the church, if you're taking from the government people's tax money because you refuse to work, you are a thief. Christians who pilfer from their jobs or cheat on their time cards or fool around four hours of an eight-hour day and they get eight hours pay are thieves. It's about to get real in here. Christians who borrow things from others with no intention of returning them are thieves. Christians who cheat others out of what they owe him. I've worked for some Christian bosses who would cheat me every chance they got as a young man. Oh, he's in the church. You know, we're going to work for you and cheat. Just just cut my hours, not do this, lower my pay, just not pay me. Do you ever take a hosen from the chosen? You know, yeah, yeah. well, I'm a brother. You know, we've had so many people work on the church. I'm a Christian. I'm a brother. Ba, 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 ba. And we'd rather hire heathens at this point. Christians who cheat out, uh, others out of what they owe him, who deny the worker his wages, who cheat on their taxes, who cheat by not giving to God, are thieves. 
Look what God's word says in Malachi 3, 8 through 9. Would anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the entire nation of you. Wow. It is so quiet now. But God knows that a portion of what we earn and what we make needs to be given back to him. We're to be givers. And, and when we don't give and we refuse to give and we ju- enjoy all the benefits of God and we refuse to give, God says, you're stealing from me. Now, I've had discussions with people. Well, that's Old Testament and the tithe is Old Testament. And listen to me. The first person who tithed was Abraham. And that was Old Testament, but they say it's legalistic, it's the law. Abraham tied to Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ, before Moses ever gave the law. Tithing and giving is not legalism, it's not Mosaic law, it's a biblical principle that's been in Scripture throughout the Scripture. And when we get in the New Testament, a tenth doesn't even cut it. We're supposed to give ourselves completely to the Lord. Now, I'm not taking the big offering after this or anything, I'm just telling you, when we steal from the government, when we cheat on our taxes, when we cheat others what we owe them, when we cheat God by enjoying all the benefits, but we don't give. I know some people that don't give nothing to God. Wow. I don't, you know, I've been giving since I got saved, and I am a blessed man. I've never had lack. I've never missed a meal. I've never not paid a bill. I got perfect credit, and I'll tell you why. Because of giving, because God God pours so much back to a giver who honors him with their sustenance, amen? I'm not not saying it to to brag. I want you to be blessed, too. You cannot give God. But this stealing, we steal in ways. People go to work and they come home with all kinds of stuff from work. They went shopping at work. You're stealing from your boss. You're on the computer. You're wasting time. My, people tell me on their jobs how people waste time. That's stealing. You're bringing a curse on yourself. Christians got to quit stealing. We should be the best employees. We should be the most honest. We should pay our fair share. We should work honest days, work for honest days, pay. I don't hear any amens. I want to hear some amens. Christians got to stop stealing, amen. Stealing is connected with a spirit of selfishness, laziness, and entitlement. No matter how we justify it, rationalize it, or let our government do it on our behalf, stealing is wrong. It's still sin, it's not for the believer, and it will bring a curse and a lid on our lives. God's remedy for stealing is a simple three-step solution. Step one, stop doing it. The one who steals, the scripture says that we're looking at here, the one who steals Uh, what, must no longer steal. That's pretty clear right there in verse 28, isn't it? Oh, I got to stop stealing. I didn't know. I thought I had to just cut down my stealing or just, you know, be like Robin Hood and steal from the rich and give to myself. No, the one who steals must no longer steal. That's the first step in the remedy. That's the solution. Just stop. Step two is go to work and pull your weight but rather he must labor producing with his own hands what is good. Did you hear? I said the L word in church, labor, work, amen. I'll be, I'm going to be preaching on laziness on Sunday. 
I mean, you guys are getting warmed up. But I mean, we have to, uh, this generation, I mean, no, everybody wants everything and they don't want to work. They can't get workers everywhere I go. We can't get workers. We can't get workers. We get, nobody wants to work. It's getting scary. I hope Jesus comes back, man. Forget about retirement and Social Security. They're, they're going to be putting us out there to work for them. Get to work and pull your weight, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good. Everybody has to pull their weight. If you're able-bodied, listen, I know not, not all of us can be a millionaire. Not all of us can have the big this and the big that, but we can all do an honest day's work with the skills that God gave us, amen? And listen, if you develop what God has given you, God will, God will reward you and prosper you and bless you. And if you give to the Lord, he's going to pour out even more of a blessing and give favor to your life. Amen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging for bread. So step two is go to work and pull your weight. They said in the Jesus movement in the 60s when all the hippies were getting saved, they wouldn't read the book of Job because they thought it said job. Get a job. Step three, learn to be a giver instead of a taker so that he will have something to share. Say share. It's not all about piling it into our bank account and, you know, buying all the good stuff and having excess. No, that he will have something to share with the one who has need. The reason we're to work and to be productive and not to steal and bring a curse on ourselves is because we should have an abundance in our life that we can use to bless others. Amen? To be a giver and not a taker, amen? To be able to have enough blessing in our lives to finance the church, to finance missions, amen, Charles, that we can give so that God can use others to reach people, amen? So it's a three-part remedy. Stop stealing, go to work and pull your weight, learn to be a giver and not a taker. If we'll do those things, we'll know the richness of God's blessing in our lives. But, you know, as we continue in these verses here, there's a whole lot more. We covered basically three topics tonight, but all of them are things that we need to consider. You know, that, that lying has to go, that stealing has to go, uh, anger has to go, and w the bad news is we can't make it go ourselves but we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work in us. So we make a decision of our will. God, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be a thief. I don't want to do any of these things. I want only truth to come out of my mouth so everybody knows who my father is. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we purpose to be the people of God, the children of God, to push aside these unbecoming attributes of the lost that don't belong in the lives of believers. God, help us where we struggle. All of us are weak in different ways. Some of us, you know, we can give and we're generous, but boy, we can't control our mouths. We can't control our anger. Some of us are docile and we never get angry, but, you know, we have a hard time telling the truth when we're put on the spot. Father, help us with these things. Holy Spirit, work in us. Conform us to the image of Christ and allow us to display the goodness of God in our lives because we've been transformed by the blood of the Lamb. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give him praise tonight.